Book Four, Chapter Two of *The Life of John Ruskin* by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. *The Life of John Ruskin* by W. G. Collingwood. Book Four, Professor and Prophet, eighteen seventy to nineteen hundred. Chapter Two. Force begun, eighteen seventy one to eighteen seventy two. Recording by Cheyenne Arrowsmith. On January the first, eighteen seventy one, was issued a small pamphlet headed Force Clavigera in the form of a letter to the working men and the labourers of England, dated from Denmark Hill, and signed John Ruskin. It was not published in the usual way. But sold by the author's engraver, Mr. George Allen, at Heathfield Cottage, Keston, Kent. It was not advertised. Press copies were sent to the leading papers, and of course the author's acquaintance knew of its publication. Strangers who heard of this curious proceeding spread a report that, in order to get Ruskin's latest, you had to travel into the country with your seven pence in your hand. And transact your business among Mister Allen's beehives, so you had, if you wanted to see what you were buying, for no arrangements were made for its sale by the booksellers. Seven pence a copy, carriage paid, no discount, and no abatement on taking a quantity. By such pilgrimages, but more easily through the post, the new work filtered out in monthly instalments to a limited number of buyers. After three years, the price was raised to ten pence. In eighteen seventy-five, the first thousands of the earlier numbers were sold. The public has a very long nose, Mister Ruskin once said, and sends out what it wants sooner or later. A second edition was issued, bound up into yearly volumes, of which eight were ultimately completed. Meanwhile, the work went on. Something in the style of the old Edison Spectator, each part containing twenty pages more or less by Ruskin, with added contributions from various correspondents. The charm of force is neither in epigram nor in anecdote, but in the sustained vivacity that runs through the texture of the work, the reappearance of golden threads of thought glittering in new figures. And among new colors, and throughout all the variety of subject, a unity of style unlike the style of his earlier works, where flowery rhetorical passages are tagged to less interesting chapters, separately studied sermonettes interposed among the geology, and Johnson, Locke, Hooker, Carlyle, or whoever happened to be the author he was reading at the time, frankly imitated. It was always clever, but often artificial, like the composition of a Renaissance painter who inserts his bel colpo in nudo to catch the eye. In force, however, the web is of a piece, all sparkling with the same life, though as it is gradually unwound from the loom, it is hard to judge the design. That can only be done when it is reviewed as a whole. At a time, his mingling of jest and earnest was misunderstood even by friends. 
the author learned too painfully the danger of seeming to trifle with cherished beliefs he forswore levity but soon relapsed into the old style out of sheer sincerity for he was too much in earnest not to be frankly himself in his utterances without writing up to or down to any other person's standard ruskin did not wish to lead a colony or to head a revolution he had been pondering for fifteen years the cause of poverty and crime and the conviction had grown upon him that modern commercialism was at the root of it all but his attacks on commercialism his analysis of its bad influence on all sections of society were too vigorous and uncompromising for the newspaper editors who received force and even for most of his private friends there were however some who saw what he was aiming at and let it be remarked that his first encouragement came from the highest quarters just as sidney smith the chief critic of early days had been the first to praise modern painters in the teeth of vulgar opinion so now carlyle spoke for force five shinny row chelsea april the thirtieth eighteen seventy one dear ruskin this false clivigera letter fifth which i have just finished reading is incomparable a quasi-sacred consolation to me which almost brings tears into my eyes every word of it is as if of spoken not out of my poor heart only but out of the eternal skies words wind with empyrean wisdom piercing as lightning and which i really do not remember to have heard the like of continue while you have such utterances in you to give them voice they will find and force entrance into human hearts whatever the angle of incidence may be that is to say whether for the degraded and inhuman blockheadism we so-called men have mostly now become you come in upon them at the broad side at the top or even at the bottom u g u g yours ever t carlyle others like sir arthur helps joined in this encouragement but the old struggle with the newspapers began over again they united in considering the whole business insane though they did not doubt his sincerity when ruskin put down his own money the tenth of what he had as he recommended his adherents to do by the end of the year they had set aside seven thousand pounds toward establishing a company to be called of st george as representing at once england and agriculture sir thomas dyke ackland and the right honourable w cooper temple afterwards lord mount temple though not pledging themselves to approval of the scheme undertook the trusteeship of the fund a few friends subscribed in june eighteen seventy two after a year and a half of force the first stranger sent in his contribution and at the end of three years two hundred and thirty six pounds thirteen shillings were collected to add to his seven thousand pounds and a few acres of land were given meanwhile ruskin practised what he preached he did not preach renunciation 
he was not a pessimist any more than an optimist sometimes he felt he was not doing enough he knew very well that others thought so i remember his saying in his rooms at oxford in one of those years here i am trying to reform the world and i suppose i ought to begin with myself i'm trying to do some benedict's work and i ought to be a saint and yet i'm living between a turkey carpet and a titian and drinking as much tea taking his second cup as i can swig that was the way he put it to an undergraduate to a lady friend he wrote later on i am reading history of early saints too for my amium book and feel that i ought to be scratched or starved or boiled or something unpleasant and i don't know if i'm a saint or a sinner in the least in medieval language how did the saints feel themselves i wonder about their saintship if he had forsaken all and followed the vocation of st francis he has discussed the question candidly in force for may eighteen seventy four would not his work have been more effectual his examples more inspiring conceivably but that was not his mission his gospel was not one of asceticism it called upon no one for any sort of suicide or even martyrdom he required of his followers that they should live their lives to the full in admiration hope and love and not that they should sacrifice themselves in fasting and wearing of camel's hair coats he wished them to work to be honest and just in all things immediately attainable he asked the tenth of their living not the widow's two mites and it was deeply painful to him to find sometimes that they had so interpreted his teaching as when he wrote later to miss beaver one of my poor companions of st george who has sent me not a widow's but a parlour-maid an old schoolmistress all her living and whom i found last night dying slowly and quietly in a damp room just the sides of your study which your landlord won't mend the roof of by the light of a single tallow candle dying i say slowly of consumption not yet near the end but contemplating it with sorrow mixed partly with fear lest she should not have done all she could for her children the sight of this and my own shameful comforts three wax candles and blazing fire and dry roof and susie and johnny for friends oh me susie what is to become of me in the next world who have in this life all my good things after carrying on force for some time his attention was drawn by mr w c silla to the question of usury at first he had seen no crying scene in interest he had held that the rights of capital were visionary and that the tools should belong to him that can handle them in a perfect state of society but he thought that the existing system was no worse in this respect than in others and his expectation of reform in a plan of investment 
went hand in hand with his hope of a good time coming in everything else so he quietly accepted his rents as he accepted his professorship for example thinking it his business to be a good landlord and spend his money generously just as he thought it his business to retain the existing south kensington drawing school and the oxford system of education not at all his ideal and to make the best use of them a lady who was his pupil in drawing and a believer in his ideals of philanthropy miss octavia hill undertook to help him in eighteen sixty four in efforts to reclaim part though a very small part of the lower-class dwellings of london half a dozen houses in marylebone left by ruskin's father to which he added three more in paradis Place, as it was euphemistically named were the subjects of their experiment they were ready cured at first but by the noblest endeavour they succeeded and set an example which has been followed in many of our towns with great results they showed what a wise and kind landlord could do by caring for tenants by giving them habitable dwellings recreation ground and fixity of tenor and requiring in return a reasonable and moderate rent he got five per cent for his capital instead of twelve or more which such property generally returns or at that time returned but when he began to write against the rent and interest there were plenty of critics ready to cite this and other investments as a damning inconsistency he was not a man to offer explanations at any time it was no defence to say that he took less and did more than other landlords and so he was glad to part with the whole to miss hill nor did he care to spend upon himself the three thousand five hundred pounds which i believe was the price it went right and left in gifts till one day he cheerfully remarked it's again awa like snow afawa is there really nothing to show for it he was asked nothing he said except this new silk umbrella he had talked so much of the possibility of carrying on honest and honourable retail trade that he felt bound to exemplify his principles he took a house number nineteen paddington street with a corner shop near his melbourne property and set himself up in business as a tea-man mr arthur seven painted the sign in neat blue letters the window was decked with fine old china bought from a cavaliere near siena whose unique collection had been introduced to notice by professor norton and miss harry tovey an old servant of denmark hill was established there like miss matte in cranford or rather like one of the salaried officials of time and tide to dispense the unadulterated leaf to all comers no advertisements no self-recommendation no catchpenny tricks of trade were allowed and yet the business went on and i am assured prospered with legitimate profits at first the various kinds of the best tea only were sold but it seemed to the tenants of the shop that coffee and sugar ought to be included in the list this was not at all in ruskin's programme and there were great debates at home about it at last he gave way 
on the understanding that the shop was to be responsible for the proper roasting of the coffee according to the best recipe after some time miss tovey died and when in the autumn of eighteen seventy six miss octavia hill proposed to take the house and business over and work it with the rest of the marylebone property the offer was thankfully accepted another of his principles was cleanliness the speedy abolition of all abolishable filth is the first process of education he undertook to keep certain streets not crossings only cleaner than the public seemed to care for between the british museum and st giles he took the broom himself for a start put his gardener downs as foreman of the job and engaged a small staff of helpers the work began as he promised in a humorous letter to the palmat gazette upon new year's day eighteen seventy two and he kept his three sweepers at work for eight hours daily to show a bit of our london streets kept as clean as the deck of a ship of the line there were some difficulties too one of the staff was an extremely handsome and lively shoe-black picked up in st giles it turned out that he was not unknown to the world he had said to artists to mr edward clifford to mr seven and went by the name of cheeky every now and then ruskin and party drove round to inspect the works downs could not be everywhere at once and cheeky used to be caught at pitch and toss or marbles in unswept museum street ruskin rarely if ever dismissed a servant but street sweeping was not good enough for cheeky and so he enlisted the army was not good enough and so he deserted and was last seen disappearing into the darkness after calling a cab for his old friends one night at the albert hall one more escapade of this most unpractical man as they called him since his fortune was rapidly melting away he had to look to his works as an ultimate resource they eventually became his only means of livelihood one might suppose that he would be anxious to put his publishing business on the most secure and satisfactory footing to facilitate sale and to ensure profit but he had views he objected to advertising though he thought that in his st george scheme he would have a yearly book gazette drawn up by responsible authorities indicating the best works he distrusted the system of unacknowledged profits and percentages though he fully agreed that the retailer should be paid for his work and wished in an ideal state to see the shopkeeper a salaried official he disliked the bad print and paper of the cheap literature of that day and knew that people valued more highly what they did not get so easily he had changed his mind with regard to one or two things religion and glacius chiefly about which he had written at length in earlier works so he withdrew his most popular books modern painters and the rest from circulation though he was persuaded by the publisher to reprint modern painters and stones of venice once more positively for the last time as they said 
the plates would give no more good impressions. He had his later writings printed in a rather expensive style, at first through Smith and Elder, after two years by Mrs. Watson and Hazel, later Hazel, Watson and Vinnie Limited, and a method of publication is illustrated in the history of Sesame and Lilies, the first volume of these collected works. It was issued by Smith and Elder, May 1871, at seven shillings, to the trader only, leaving the retailer to fix the price to the public. In September 1872, the work was also supplied by Mr. George Allen, and the price raised to nine shillings, sixpence, carriage paid, to trade and public alike, with the idea that an extra shilling, or nearly ten percent, might be added by the bookseller for his trouble in ordering the work if he did not add the commission that was his own affair though with postage of order and payment when only one or two copies at a time were asked for this did not leave much margin so it was doubled by the simple expedient of doubling the price or to be accurate raising it to eighteen shillings carriage paid for twenty shillings over the counter it was freely prophesied by businessmen that this would not do however at the end of fifteen years the sixth edition of this work in this form was being sold in spite of the fact that five years before a small reprint of the same book had been brought out at five shillings and was then in its fourth edition of three thousand copies each compared with the enormous sale of sensational novels and school books this is no good matter but for a didactic work offered to the public without advertisement and in the face of the almost universal opposition of the book-selling trade it means not only that as an author ruskin had made a secure repetition but also that he deserved the curious tribute once paid him by the journal of a big modern shop compton house liverpool as a great tradesman end of book four chapter two recording by cheyenne arrowsmith